What a great way to start our Easter service this morning. Now listen, if you believe Jesus is alive, on the count of three, I want you to yell at the top of your lungs, he is risen. Y'all don't leave me hanging, okay? 9.15, nailed this. 11 o'clock's gotta do better. On the count of three, he is risen. Y'all ready? One, two, three. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Man, it's great to see all of you who are here with us in the house. I want to welcome our online church family as well. Uh, Listen, today we're not just gathering with hundreds of people on our campus. We're actually gathering with some almost 2.5 billion people across the world as we celebrate the greatest event in world history. Now, here's what I know. On a day like today, there's uh, probably a bunch of different groups of folks here, at least two main groups. I just wanna speak to those groups really briefly. First of all, I know that there's some of you here and you are team Jesus all the way, right? So I I see you in all your pastel colors and your pink ties and, and you look good. You're looking good, look good, feel good. I appreciate, see one dude back there with a bow tie on, I love it, looking good. Man, you, you are team Jesus, you are wearing the WWJD bracelets before they were even cool. You got the Jesus, Jesus Fish bumper sticker on the back of your car like nobody's business. Man, you are excited because it's Easter and I'm a part of your team, right? I'm excited as well. I also know that there's another group of you who are here because your mom or your grandma or some friend, somebody shamed you into coming, all right? And you're just here to get them off your back. And so the conversation last night or this weekend went something like this. Hey, listen, son, I I know you don't go to church with me anymore. And I've not been been feeling well in a while. This could be my last Easter on planet Earth. And it would be really nice to have the family together for one last Easter. And so you're here to get that person off your back. In either case, man, I'm glad that you're here. I promise you I'm going to make this as painless as I can for the next 30, 35 minutes. And then we get to all go smash some deviled eggs and eat the heads off of chocolate bunnies. And it's going to be great. So win-win for everybody, okay? Now, I remember a few years ago, uh, as, as a family tradition, sometimes Friday night, Saturday night, we'll, we'll watch a movie together. So I remember a few years ago, we were watching a pirate movie. I think it was like a Swiss Family Robinson or something like that. And I remember I was tucking my, my young son into bed that evening, and he looked at me with a twinkle in his eye, and he asked the question, he said, Dad, do you think there are still treasures out there? And I looked at him, and I said, yes, son. I would almost guarantee you there's still treasures out there. And he just kind of smiled and closed his eyes and drifted off to sleep. I imagine just kind of dreaming about discovering treasure and battling pirates. Man, do you remember that feeling as a kid? It's just that, that kind of awe about life and everything was exciting and, and the, the possibilities were endless. Everything was super exciting. I think we all remember that. That's what I I would call the happily ever after effect. In fact, I would bet, I would bet, I would wager for most of you, your favorite movies, books, stories as a child had happily ever after endings, didn't they? I bet most of them are happily ever after endings. In fact, I want to start this morning just by having a little bit of fun. We're going to do some movie trivia. Is that okay with you guys? We'll do some movie trivia, and then we'll get into the, the, the real deal here. So movie trivia, it's time. 
These are some of the classic happily ever after movies. Many of these littered my childhood, probably your childhood. Now, now here's the deal. We're going to throw up an image on the screen, and when you recognize the movie title, I just want you to shout it out, okay? So this is audience participation time, all right? Are you all ready? Movie trivia time, Easter edition. All right, number one on the screens. Snow White, all right, you know your Disney movies. So Snow White is the first one. Next one. Peter Pan, one of my favorites as a young boy growing up. Peter Pan. All right, next one. Who said Kristen Cheryl? Who's, that came. I'm gonna find you after the service. Now that was one of my, my sister's favorites, right? So we watched that on repeat when I was, when I was little. Uh, all right, next one. The, li the Little Mermaid. Yeah, my sister also loved that one and watched it on repeat when I was little. All right, now it gets a little bit harder. Next one. Oh, somebody nailed it so fast. Man, I don't think that I don't think the image was fully on the screen before she said the Princess Bride. All right, next one. What dude just said that? All right. We're gonna have security in the back. You can drop your man card off as you exit this building. <laughs> he said he was under duress. <laughs> All right, next one. <laughs> that is not Pastor Mike in college trying to impress Angelica. That, that is, actually, maybe it is. <laughs> That's Nacho Libre, right? Listen, man, we love these stories. We love happy endings, right? We all want a happily ever after story for ourselves and those that we love. But here's the problem. For most of us, if we're honest, somewhere along the way, we end up jaded in life, don't we? We just, we just, we just do, right? We, we experience pain, we experience loss, we experience betrayal, we experience disappointment. Maybe life doesn't turn out exactly the way that we hoped that it would. Life kicks us in the teeth, and we begin to lose that childlike wonder that we all once had. Last year, there was a, an article that got got released about this time actually in the New York Times uh, by an author named Margaret Rankle and her article was entitled Sadness and Loss Are Everywhere Books Can Help and in the article I just want to share with you one of her quotes this will be on the screens for you she writes this reading stories is a gentle way for a child to encounter the hardest truth that shadows mortal life there are no happy endings does she write could, could she be right? Are, are happy endings really just a lie that we tell our kids until they're grown up enough or mature enough to actually embrace and realize the hopeless plight of real life? Or might there truly be a way for us to live, as the fairy tales put it, happily ever after? If you have a Bible analog or digital, let me encourage you, open that up, go to it on your device, and head for John's Gospel. John's gospel, that's in your New Testament. We're actually gonna start in Luke 24, but we'll quickly shift to John, and, uh, and then we'll kind of park there for the rest of our time this morning. If you don't have a Bible this morning, that's okay. We'll have all of these scriptures on the screens for you. But before we jump into the storyline this morning, I just kind of want to take a moment to set the stage for you because I feel like oftentimes at Easter, 
pastors make the mistake of starting in the middle of the story and if you start in the middle of the story sometimes it doesn't make sense it's kind of like when you walk into the living room and your family's in the middle of the movie and you can't figure out what the heck's going on right you're like why did he just slap her and why are they angry at that why are robots taking over the world you know i feel like every single family has that in the middle of the movie question asker right doesn't every family have one of those just go ahead and look at them right now if they're sitting beside you all right, you guys are going to need some therapy after this is over. Um, I'm not going to tell you who that is in my family. I'll just tell you that I love my wife deeply. She's very, I, I, lo, I love her deeply. So here, here's the deal. Let me give you the whole thing in a nutshell. In the beginning, Genesis 1, all right, the, the first book of the Bible, we get this breathtaking scene. God creates everything that is, right? Nature, humanity, animals, it's beautifully perfect, it's stunning paradise, and then our first parents do what you and I do every single day of our lives, and that is they chose their way over God's way. That's what the Bible calls sin, right? So that's kind of a big, scary word in our culture today. That's, that's all it means, choosing our way over God's way. It's missing his mark. And ever since that moment in time, the world has been hurled into a cycle of brokenness, chaos, sadness, and pain. And listen, I don't care if you're here as a Christian, a Buddhist, New Age, Muslim, agnostic, don't know what you believe, it doesn't matter what your worldview is, you and I can both look at the world around us and our heart screams, something is wrong. We can look at the school shootings around our country, we can, we can look at uh, innocent children starving in Africa, the innocent suffering and justice thriving. And our hearts all simultaneously cry out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And our hearts are right, it wasn't. And see, that's the thing that sin does. Most people don't realize this, but sin takes us off course of God's good design for creation and humanity. And it separates us from our creator relationally, and it causes brokenness in his good design, the creation. Now, that's the bad news. The, the good news is we get a little image of hope in Genesis chapter three. In the ashes of the fall, God whispers a promise to Eve. And he says, listen, someday I'm gonna send a savior. I'm gonna send a savior and he's gonna, he's gonna suffer, but he's eventually going to crush sin, Satan, and death. One of my favorite paintings, and I show this oftentimes around Easter, is, is, is I'm gonna go ahead and throw it up on the screens now. It's a painting entitled, Mary Consoles Eve. And I think it's just a beautiful picture. We see Mary there, pregnant with Jesus. We see Eve just dejected in the ashes of the fall. We see Mary's foot crushing the head of the serpent, representing sin, Satan, and death. Again, foreshadowing one day that her son would come and rescue us from all of those things. I think it's beautiful. And one of the things that happened is in the Old Testament times, people awaited this promised Savior for centuries. The guy who would show up and he would right all wrongs and he would make all sad things come untrue and he would wipe away every tear. And then one day, about 2,000 years ago, a historical man named Jesus stepped onto the scene of history. And he began to teach with such authority that people were really kind of taken aback. They were like, man, our religious teachers don't teach with this kind of authority. And then he started doing really wild, mind-blowing things, miraculous stuff. He started healing people and making blind people see, feeding the hungry by the thousands just by taking a, a little loaf of bread and some fish and then feeding many thousands of people, casting out demons, offering hope 
preaching about a new kingdom and a new way of life. It was amazing. And just as people got their hope up and began to celebrate, like, man, maybe, maybe this is the guy that we were promised so long ago, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it all came to a screeching halt. Jesus was unjustly arrested, brutally tortured, executed on a Roman cross. Game over. His disciples cowered. They went into hiding. How do we know that that was their reaction? They tell us in their own gospels that they write. Which, by the way, if you were writing a fairy tale or a legend to kind of get political clout for yourself or to make money for yourself, you write yourself into a legend as a hero. You don't write yourself into a legend as a, as a coward, sort of trembling in the corner in the fetal position, sucking your thumb, and yet that's exactly what all of them do. Why? They don't want to be remembered that way. It's just the way it happened. They were just telling the truth. So by the time we arrive to the scene, Jesus is dead. His lifeless body has been removed from the cross. He's been placed in the tomb of an influential man named Joseph of Arimathea. His disciples are terrified because they're thinking if they got our leader, they're probably coming after us. They're in hiding in Jerusalem. Game over, movement done, hope dashed. Happily never after, right? That's how it seemed anyway. So let's pick up the story in Luke's gospel, chapter 24. This will be on the screens for you. We'll quickly shift over to John chapter 20. Luke, our author, was a a Greek doctor who, by the way, uh, studied the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus in the process, became a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus himself. This is how he records the event of that first Easter morning for us. Luke writes this, but on the first day of the week, that Sunday at early dawn, scholars tell us between 3 and 6 a.m., so super early, they, who's the they? It's a handful, probably four or five women who were disciples of Jesus, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed by this, see, they, they weren't expecting to find an empty tomb. That, that's why they had the spices. They were expecting to find a body, right? Because they weren't ignorant superstitious people they know what we know when people die they stay what they stay dead so they're expecting to find a body instead there was nobody there they're perplexed luke's tells us about this they're like they're shocked this says there are two men or two angels stood by them in dazzling apparel and as they were frightened they bowed their faces to the ground and the men or the angels said to them why do you seek the living among the dead he is not here but has risen Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And then they remembered his words. Now listen, there have been a handful of theories over the years emerged to try to explain the empty tomb. You should know this. Most scholars, whether they're Christian scholars or historians or non-Christian scholars, most scholars nowadays agree that there was a man, a historical man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, was executed by Rome, and that his tomb was empty three days later. Very few people that actually know this stuff and study this stuff would disagree with anything I just said. And so there's all these theories that have sort of been bantied about to explain why his tomb was empty three days later. Now, we don't have time to do a deep dive into all those theories. We've done that past Easter's. You can find that on the website. Let me just quickly mention a couple of them. The first one, probably the most popular one that you might hear about today, is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory. And the swoon theory says this. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. 
He just, you know, he, he probably had a little bit of blood loss. It was a little, bit, uh, a little bit traumatic for him, and so he fainted. He fainted on the cross, and they took him off the cross, and they placed him in the tomb. And as he laid there in the cool environment of that tomb, it eventually kind of resuscitated him, and he got his energy back. And then he, he rolled away the two to three ton stone by himself after being crucified, and he got past the, the Roman Navy seals, snuck off, appeared to his disciples, and then disappeared to a villa on the beach, never to be heard of from again right so that legit that's one of the prominent theories out there that you'll you'll hear uh another one i'll just mention briefly is the stolen body theory that his disciples came and stole his body to launch this new religion to gain money and power for themselves there's only one small problem actually there's a couple problems with that particular theory but for one is you you have to believe that the same guys that were so afraid that they were cowering in a room by themselves somehow out of nowhere got the courage in the middle of the night to sneak to the graveyard to overpower or outmaneuver the roman guard these navy sealed killed trainers they stole the body, they buried it under John's hot tub in his backyard or something like that, and then when they started torturing and executing him, none of them would give up the truth. Now, now know this, there are people who will die for things that aren't true. We see that all the time. That's why kids or, or women will strap a bomb to themselves in the Middle East and walk into a church just like this one and, and blow up scores of innocent people. They're believing something that's not true, but they, they think it's true, Right? Here's the, here's the difference. Nobody dies for something that they know is a lie. You see the difference? Like I could probably come out into the crowd this morning and pull some of you aside and, and say, hey, listen, um, let, let's start this whole new cult thing and we're gonna start this new move it, movement. You just, you just tell a lie that this dude resurrected and listen, we're gonna rake it in. We're all gonna be millionaires. We can all have our little beach house on, 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 in Bali or something like that. And, and I might be able to convince some of you to go along with that because some of you are greedy little sinners with black hearts. But until, you would only go along with that until, until, until they strapped you into the electric chair. Right? You're changing your tune real fast when they're about to flip that switch, aren't you? You're like, it's Chris Dillon. Like it was his idea. It's a lie. The guy never resurrected. We got his body under John's hot tub. I'll dig it up. I'll show you where it's at. You're not going to the grave for a lie. And neither would they. And yet history tells us that all of them, 11 of the 12, all of them except for John, were brutally tortured, maimed, and executed, and none of them would recant that Jesus rose from the dead. It's just unbelievable. It's, you can't explain that apart from something miraculous happening. Man, I could spend the next hour just kind of dissecting the different theories, the hallucination theory, all these theories. Suffice it to say, they all fall apart really quickly. So the question that I think we're left is, well, how did the first eyewitnesses react to this? I mean, like, the, the men and women who were actually there, who knew Jesus, witnessed the execution, saw all of this, what were their theories? What were the conclusions that they drew? Now, here, here's what I want us to see as we read John's account. There were three ways, three ways people saw the empty tomb of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And here's the cool thing. I would argue these are the same three ways that people see Jesus today in our modern culture. All right, you ready? So three ways. You just kind of examine yourself and determine which of these three categories you would have to say that you fall into this morning. So John chapter 20, starting in verse two, John writes this. One of Jesus' closest friends witnessed everything go down. He says this. So she, that's Mary Magdalene, one of the female disciples of Jesus. Uh, uh, she ran, again, remember, they're, they're shocked, they're perplexed. 
They were expecting a body. There's no body. So now they're running. And went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. This, this is John referring to himself here. The other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So they're, they're freaking out. They're like, the body's gone? Like, we don't know where it's at? Do you, have y'all heard anything? Like, it doesn't, we looked around, it does, no, nothing's there. Verse three, so Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I love the fact that John is humble enough not to mention himself by name here, but competitive enough to record for all of history that he's a faster runner than Peter, right? <laughs> Inaugural Easter 5K, John is the champion. He wants you to, not, to know that, not forget it. Verse five, and stooping to look in, here's the first instance, the first word for see or saw, and stooping to look in, John saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. So again, we have the first occurrence of the word saw here. This is the Greek word blepo. Everybody say blepo. Blepo, all right? Now here's what it means. So three, remember, three ways that people see Jesus. Number one, blepo means a quick glance. A quick glance. It's just to, to notice something or, or be aware of something, but there's no deep comprehension. Now, I would submit to you today that there are many people in our culture, this is how they see Jesus. They take a quick glance at him, man. They, they've heard the name. They might vaguely be aware of some of the stories surrounding his life. But, you know, life is busy, there are bills that need to be paid. There are soccer practices that kids need to be shuttled to and from. There are hours of mind-numbing social media scrolling that needs to happen every single night before we go to bed. Who's got time to figure out what really happened all those years ago, thousands of miles away in Jerusalem? So they glance, but they move on. They glance, but they move on. And maybe that's where some of you are this morning, in the room or watching online. Maybe you've taken a glance at Jesus. Maybe you went to church for a while when you were a kid with a parent or a grandparent or something like that, but life got busy and you didn't know what to make of it all and you just moved on. And I get that. But here, listen, guys, here's the problem when we only glance at something and we don't look into something more deeply. We can miss some of the most important things in life. I can remember a, a few years ago, I was with my, my son, Judy, who was a little bit younger, and we were uh, at one of the rivers uh, right, right here off the Blue Ridge Parkway, and we were kind of exploring the river, and we found this really cool uh, pool that was kind of like really calm and kind of sectioned off from the rest of the river, and you could step into it, and it's maybe knee-deep, and there are all these huge stones that you kind of step across, and he was kind of stooping down, playing in the water. We were probably there for 30 minutes, something like that, and he had a stick, and he was digging and finding all kinds of things, and I was kind of walking across the rocks, and all of a sudden, after just kind of hanging out maybe 20, 30 minutes or something like that, I noticed that there was a snake that was disguised right on one of the big rocks that he had been playing on that I had just stepped on. So I pull up my phone. I'm like, first of all, I'm like, hey, Sam, let's back up a little bit. I pull up my phone. Sure enough, it was a venomous snake. I, can't, I think it was a cottonmouth or something like that. Now, now listen, I, we had been there. I had glanced at that rock no fewer than half a dozen times, but because I didn't look more intently, I missed something that could have had profound consequences for me or my young son. And see, that's the danger when we only glance at Jesus and then look back down at our phones and continue with life. We miss not the danger of a venomous snake, but we miss the beauty potentially of a savior. 
And so that's the first way that people look at Jesus. Quick glance, but life is busy, and you move on. Look at verse six. He continues the story. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw. That's the second occurrence, a different word for the word saw, the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. So Peter finally gets there, and he's huffing and puffing, maybe a little bit ticked that his buddy just outran him on the first Easter 5K, and he sees John hesitating by the tomb. He's like, hey, listen, you might be faster than me, but you're a wuss. Move out of the way. I'm going in first, right? You scary cat. And so Peter doing so this is so Peter he walks straight in and we get the second occurrence of the word saw there it's the Greek word theoreo theoreo we get our word theater and our word theory from this Greek root word so think about you're watching a movie maybe it's a suspenseful movie it's a kind of a mystery and as you watch it you're kind of concocting your theories about who done it who who, who murdered who or how the movie's going to end something like that that's the idea that we get here that's the second way i think people even today see jesus and that's number two they kind of look at him with an intense observation so it's, it's, a, it's a serious attempt to analyze and make sense of something. So Peter walks in, he sees the graves closed, and then the math formula kind of kicks in in his brain, right? And he, he's trying to figure out, he's like, man, if these, were, if these were grave robbers, like I know how grave robbers work in our time and play. Like, like how, first of all, how did they get past the Roman guard? How did they roll the tomb away? Why would they take the grave? Clo- that would have taken them maybe hours, like scholars tell us that, that when people died, they were wrapped in about 75 to 100 pounds of, of cloth and spices to kind of embalm their bodies, to entomb them. It would have taken them forever. If it's a grave robber, they would just snatch the body and run. This doesn't make sense. So, so Peter's starting to develop this theory in his mind, but it's still a little hazy for him. He's still, he's still trying to figure out. He's determined, but he's not there yet. My guess, that's where others of you are this morning or watching online. Man, maybe you're intrigued by Jesus. Maybe, I don't know, maybe some of his, his teachings even move you. Maybe you're curious about him. Maybe you're seeking the truth. And if that's you, if you're in that second category of person this morning, let me just encourage you, keep on. Keep, keep pressing in. My guess is the closer you get to Jesus, the more convinced you'll become that he is the answer to that God-shaped hole that exists in all of our souls. Now, you may or may not know this about me. If you know me well, you probably do know this about me, but I am a, I'm a skeptic by nature. I'm not proud of this, but I'm a skeptic by nature. If you tell me the sky's blue, I'm probably gonna go outside and make sure that you're not trying to trick me or something like that. Um, there, there are some of you who, when it comes to your relationship with God, you are, you are emotion-driven, right? That, that's how you encounter God. That's how you meet God. Um, so you'll come to a place like this, you'll encounter the Holy Spirit, you'll sing a few songs, you'll get goosebumps, and you're like, I'm in. I, got, I believe, I've experienced him emotionally. Man, and I love all of you emotion-driven people. I married one of y'all. Y'all are fun. You're fun, fun to hang out with. You don't want to hang out with people like me at a party. You want to hang out with people like my wife at a party. I love you emotion-driven people. But for me, something's broken inside of me. I have to analyze things. I have to break things apart. I have to figure them out to understand them. Right, So for instance, if you sell some awesome health supplement that has all these amazing things, uh, go to my wife. Don't come to me, all right? She, she'll be ready to sell her kidney on the black market and buy 742 bottles immediately. I'm gonna need 17 peer-reviewed research papers and I'm still not gonna believe you, all right? So go to her first. Don't come to me. And I, listen, I love that the Christian faith 
creates space for both childlike faith and skeptics looking for answers. Don't you like that? The Christian faith creates space for both childlike faith and skeptics who are looking for answers. Jesus invites questions. Think about Thomas, who even after the resurrection doubted. And Jesus embraces skeptics, provides answers that will satisfy in ways nothing else will. But that's the second way I think people encounter Jesus in our time as well. See Jesus, intense observation, but they haven't really solved the riddle yet. Let's continue on. Verse 8, then the other disciple, uh, John, who had reached, just in case you forgot, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and now a different, a third Greek word used for Saul, and he saw and believed. Now, again, this is the third Greek word used for Saul. This is a Greek word, horao. Horao. And it means literally to perceive with intelligent comprehension. To perceive or to pierce with intelligent comprehension. That's the third way that people see Jesus. Number three is a deep personal comprehension. Now, you notice what happens to John when he sees in this way. It says, he saw and he believed. This is a, a way of seeing that leads to a, a transformed worldview. It leads to belief in Christ. He saw clearly, and he finally understood. And the implications for John were deeply and personally profound. He was never the same again. It's that aha moment that we've all experienced where something that didn't make sense, all of a sudden makes sense, it clicks, and it's like, ah, man, I didn't understand that forever, and now it makes total sense. I get it. I remember 20 plus years ago now, uh, back on uh, our college campus when I first saw my wife, it, it, started as a, it started as a quick glance, but then it moved into intense observation. How you doing? But it <laughs> that was uncalled for, but it wasn't until, I'm just telling you, it wasn't until we got married that I experienced that third way of seeing a deep personal comprehension of who she was as we centered our lives around one another. And I just want to tell you that this type of seeing, this third category of sight that John is inviting us into, listen guys, it's profoundly relational. It's more than a quick glance. It's more than scientifically analyzing to create some fact-driven a theory of what happened all those years ago. This is profoundly, deeply relational and transformational. It's more than a quick glance. It's more than a detailed observation to create a theory. And you say, maybe you're out there and you're kind of on the fence about all this. You're like, okay, Chris, that's kind of cute. That's almost compelling. But do you believe, do you really believe a man came back from death 2,000 years ago and he resurrected to life? Like, Chris, you, you seem not brilliant by any stretch of the imagination, but slightly smarter than a rock. This seems, this seems above you. Do you really believe that a dead man rose to life? Now, listen, we, don't, we, don't, we really don't have time to chase down all the historical evidences of the resurrection this morning. Again, I've attempted to do this. Other Easter's, all that's on the website. Let me, let me just tell you what I find most compelling when it comes to historical evidence, and that is the eyewitness accounts. Now, there are many. We could, literally, we could spend the next hour breaking down the eyewitness accounts to the resurrected Jesus. We could spend a lot of time talking about the women that Jesus appeared to first. The fact that 
women were the, the first eyewitnesses both to the empty tomb and to the resurrected Jesus. You say, well, Chris, why, why is that a big deal that the first eyewitnesses were women? Well, it was a huge deal in that culture because the sad reality is in that culture, women were, were seen basically as, as property. They weren't seen as equal. They didn't have the same value as men. In fact, their testimony, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in court. So this is why it's important. If you are gonna start a fake religion or launch a legend to get yourself money, power, fame, the last people that you would make, the first eyewitnesses, are women in that culture. Because that would absolutely undercut the whole traction of the movement that you're trying to make. And yet every single disciple records in the Gospels that it was the women disciples of Jesus who were the first eyewitnesses both to the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus. Why would they do that? Because it's true. It's the way it happened. And they weren't trying to launch a legend. They were trying to tell us what actually happened 2,000 years ago. We could talk about Paul who we know from extra biblical account, this was a real dude. He was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee. He was a powerful guy. He was an influential guy. He was a Jesus hater, guys. He hated Jesus. In fact, he devoted his life to stamping out the church. He oversaw the execution of Christians until he met the resurrected Jesus one day and his life was absolutely revolutionized. He became the most ferocious preacher and missionary of the first century. How do you explain that? Apart from something miraculous happening. And then we have to deal with the issue of Jesus' own family, right? Who, who all denied his messianic claims, we know, until after the resurrection, and then all of a sudden they begin to worship him. Think about his half-brother James, became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. History tells us that he was thrown off a building, and that didn't do the trick, so they clubbed him to death because he would not refuse, he wouldn't recant that his brother resurrected from the dead. Now let me ask you something. Some of y'all have siblings. What would it take for them to convince you to worship them? Now seriously, what would it take for you to worship your sibling? Some of y'all are sitting by him right now. It would take a miracle, wouldn't it? Right, like I can promise you, I, I, got, one si I got one sibling. I, if I rolled up to my sister and I just whispered in her ear, hey, listen, this is gonna blow your mind. I know this is gonna be surprising to, you, surprising to me as well. I'm God. And, and here's what I'm gonna need you to do. I'm gonna need you to start worshiping me. She would immediately point me to a healthcare professional ASAP, right? So you need, you need to go get checked out. You've got to explain how his family, who rejected his claims, all of a sudden worship him as God after the resurrection. And then we also have to explain the remarkable fact that within three generations, by 351 AD, over half the Roman Empire, the most pagan empire in the history of the world, professed Jesus as Lord and King. This is unbelievable. You have to make sense of what happened. Something happened. Historian Paul Mayer says it well. I'll put his quote on the screens for you. He writes this, If all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable, according to the canons of historical research, to conclude that the sepulcher of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, in which Jesus was buried, was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter. And no shred of evidence has, been, has yet been discovered in literary sources, epigraphy, or archaeology that would disprove this statement. All I'm saying is, listen, 
If you're on the fence, you have to do something with Jesus. You have to. You have to do something with the empty tomb. I mean, for Pete's sake, our our calendars are marked by this man's life and death. B.C. and A.D., we mark our lives by this dude's death. There have been more books written about him than anybody else in history. More songs sung about him than anyone else in history. More paintings of him than anyone else in history. And so let me just ask you this question. How are you seeing Jesus this morning? Have you just given him a quick glance, perhaps, as you look back down on your phone and continue on with your busy life? Have you maybe observed carefully to create theories but haven't really come to any solid conclusions? Or have you comprehended him personally and profoundly in a transformative way? And have you made him the center of your life? I love this quote by uh, Philip Yancey. This will be on the screens for you. Yancey writes this, in many respects, I find an unresurrected Jesus easier to accept. Yeah, me too. Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. Moreover, Easter means he must be loose out there somewhere. (laughs) Church, I'm just telling you, he's alive and he's loose out there somewhere. And his promises through time and history stand today for you and me. Whoever calls on his name will find life in him. For Christians, Easter is the greatest celebration in history. For non-Christians, it is the greatest invitation in all of history. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever... It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your past. So that whoever believes will not perish but find eternal life. Church, would you bow your heads with me? Would you close your eyes? Even if you're watching at home, let me encourage you, bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm not gonna do anything weird or spiritual right now. I just wanna eliminate distraction for a moment. Invitation this morning, really, really simple, really clear, really fast. We'll be out of here real soon. Here's the invitation. As you see Jesus now, as you think about those three categories, glancing at him, just observing, or really comprehending him relationally, here's the question. Do you need to begin or renew a relationship with Jesus Christ today? Just ask yourself that question honestly. Don't, Don't think about the person sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you. Just think about you right now. Do you need to begin or renew a relationship with Jesus today? And here's what I'm saying. For some of you, I guarantee you, for some of you, I promise you, it's time to stop glancing. For some of you, it's time to stop observing and creating theories. And it's time for some of you to go all in with Jesus. It's time for some of you just to push all the chips to the middle of the table and say, Jesus, I don't even understand all of this. I don't even know if I fully believe believe that somebody can come back from the dead, but there's something inside of me that's telling me to go all in with you. For some of you, you need to cross that threshold of faith for the very first time in your life and place all of your faith and all of your trust in this resurrected king named Jesus. 
and find hope and forgiveness and freedom in him. Now I'd also guarantee there are people here who at one time you were close to Jesus. And you think back to that time and it was a sweet time. Maybe in high school, maybe in college, maybe as a young adult. But life got hard and you drifted away. And there was a time where you were close to the Savior, but today you would have to admit that you're far away in a distant land. And I'm convinced in a room this size with a number of people that we have online, there are more than a few prodigal daughters and prodigal sons. And that was my story for a lot of years. And Jesus hunted me down and he tracked me down and he pursued me when I wasn't looking for him and he grabbed a hold of my life and I've never been the same since. And if that's you, if you're the prodigal son, if you're the prodigal daughter, here's my invitation to you this morning on this Easter day. Won't you come back home? Man, won't won't you come back home? Don't you know that you got a father who loves you? You have a Savior who gave it all, who died to ransom you, to redeem you, to forgive you, to adopt you into his family as his son, as his beloved daughter. Don't you know that you got a home and today is the day that it's time to go back to your Savior? And so if you're in either of those categories, if you need to trust Jesus for the first time or if you've drifted and you need to come back home today, I'm just gonna encourage you right now to say a prayer with me just in the quietness of your own heart with your head bowed, your eyes closed, you're not looking at anybody else. This is between you and God. And if you need to cross that threshold of faith, just pray something like this. The words don't matter. God sees your heart. God, I confess to you right now that I'm a sinner. That I have chosen my way over your way time and time again and I'm tired of sitting on the throne of my own life. I'm just making a mess out of everything. So God, the best way that I know how I, I've heard this message, I, I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. I believe that he walked out of that tomb and I wanna give my life to him. So the best way I know how, God, right now, I just wanna turn, I wanna repent from my sin. I wanna place all of my faith and all of my trust in Jesus. And Jesus, I love you and I wanna follow you all the days of my life. God, would you give me your Holy Spirit to lead me and to guide me into this great adventure that you have for me? And if you're a part of that second category of person and you've drifted away, you're the prodigal daughter, you're the prodigal son, would you just say a prayer like this? God, I'm I'm so sorry that I've drifted. I remember those days of intimacy with you and I long to return home. I feel like I've done so much and I've failed you so often, God, but I've heard this message of grace and hope today and I know, I see clearly now that I have a Father who loves me and a Savior who redeemed me and I want to come back home. I want to renew and refresh my relationship with you and begin to walk intimately and closely with you. I want to see you in a personal way again. I want to walk with you all the days of my life. as your heads are still bowed and your eyes are still closed I just want to say I think there's something that happens spiritually inside of us when we respond physically and so I'm not going to ask you to stand up or raise your hand or come up here or dance a jig or anything weird 
But if you just prayed one of those prayers with me, here's what I want you to do. I want you to simply make eye contact. Just look up right now. Nobody's looking. Just look up. Make eye contact with me. Many people in the 915 did that. You just look up. Make eye contact with me. I want to pray for you. If you just prayed one of those prayers, look up and make eye contact with me. Praise God. Praise God. Father, thank you for being the author of new life for drawing people to yourself that you're just as alive and active that you're loose out there somewhere and you're still drawing people to yourself God for those who just prayed that prayer Father would you just enliven something in their hearts and their spirits that they would walk out of here with a refreshed heart a new nature a desire to follow you all the days of their life God I pray now, God, that we would celebrate you well as we get ready to sing this last song, that we would just sing it at the top of our lungs, that you would be honored by the praise and worship of your sons and your daughters this morning. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus, the resurrected king of this world and the entire universe. Amen. Church family, you can look up at me now. Listen, I want to say this to you. That tomb is still empty and Jesus is alive. Let's stand and let's worship him.